Dirty Talk. Plain Talk. Unrivaled Talk. Talk Radio. The only radio show you can count on for a proper serving of good old-fashioned common sense. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on this proper first working day <coughs> excuse me, of the new year. The problem is, of course, hardly anyone is actually working. We are here for you at the World Headquarters of Common Sense, naturally. But if you're looking for any guidance from the government, they're still telling people not to bother. Three quarters of office workers aren't in an office today and a million Britons are stuck in self-isolation, leaving bins uncollected, hospitals short of staff, trains without drivers, schools without teachers and restaurants without chefs. Do you remember when Britain used to be called the sick man of Europe? Well, I think we are back in that place. 1970s chic, for heaven's sake. As usual, it's COVID that's getting the blame. But honestly, can you really be sure that a million people are staying at home because they've genuinely tested positive? Or are they simply swinging the leg? I'm not saying they all are, but I reckon at least half of them are. 0344 499 1000. First up this morning, we're joined by man on Sunday columnist Dan Hodges, who will give us his take on the events of the last few days, the Plan B restrictions, and the upcoming speech from Sir Keir Starmer, who will once more be setting out his vision uh, for the country. Don't hold your breath, though. I don't think it would be particularly revelationary with you. Uh, revelatory, even. Uh, also, Boris Johnson, what does he do now? Because he's got an opportunity to save his own skin. Will he do it? Uh, will he make the leap? Will he understand that sometimes, in order to be popular, you have to do things that your advisors tell you not to do? Laura Dosworth is here as well. She's got plenty to say about what the state is doing to our children, from forcing them to wear masks in classrooms once more, to causing a massive increase in the number of eating disorders being seen by doctors in young people most recently. And we'll be taking a look at why private companies are handing out 22,000 parking tickets every single day. It's a racket, and no one seems willing to do anything about it. It's literally a license to print money for some of these people. So today, here's what we want. We want your stories of fighting these cowboys and how you beat them if you did. 0344 499 1000. We'll be going live to California to get the latest news from the USA with Donna Harvey. And Kevin O'Sullivan is here as well with his take on Prince Andrew and Sadiq Khan's latest wheeze, which is to decriminalise cannabis, would you believe? Great idea, Sadiq. 0344 499 1000. You'll listen to me, Mike Graham, right here on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome to the first proper working day of the new year. However, uh, as I look out the window and the ever encroaching gloom comes towards me, it looks more and more as though nobody's actually working. London is still pretty much of a ghost town. The roads are pretty empty. Most of the trains coming into the city uh, are being cancelled, or an awful lot of them are. And uh, some tube trains are remarkably empty as well. Let's talk to Dan Hodges, man on Sunday commentator, a man that <clears throat> kept his company for an awful lot of 2021. Uh, we'll get his take on how the new year is going so far. Dan, a very happy new year to you. And to you. So um, here we are. First working day of the year uh, and three quarters of the people aren't working. Tremendous. So what, what are we going to do? Well, I mean, I think there is obviously a very obvious reason why a significant number of people aren't working, and that's because of that's because of COVID and the government's work from work from home advice, um, which I think in the current circumstances is relatively sensible. Um, is it necessary, have, though? Is the point? Well, I mean, as ever, we're we're we're, we're never going to know, are we? We're <laughs> never going to know because we're never going to know what would have happened if uh if if we'd all just literally carried on as as normal but i i think in the in the context of what we what we were seeing before christmas i think the advice was sensible 
I think there are a couple of issues that we are going to need to address, though. I think the first one is in relation to the sort of the COVID isolation period. We've seen in the United States that that has been significantly reduced. And if the disruption continues here, then I think that's something, frankly, we're going to need to start to look at, especially given what we're seeing within the NHS at the moment, which is, which is quite clearly that the crisis that was predicted by some is simply not materialised or is or is yet to materialise. Well, not only did it not materialise, Dan, I mean, the, 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 uh, the, the estimates were so far off as to be laughable. Yeah, and I think that when we get when we get out when we get out of this, I think that is something we're going to need to have a very very serious discussion about because, you know, I, I I'm not one of these anti I'm not anti science, but I, I quite the opposite. I think we need to analyse the science and we need to look at the science and we need to be honest. The science as we are seeing it so far, in terms of the predictions that were made, was completely wrong. Yeah, and wrong by such. Um, I, by such a margin of error that we now have to start having a serious discussion, not about whether we have the science, but about how we get better science and how we get science that we can actually use Mm. in the midst of a crisis like this. So, for example, uh, you know, I was putting this out the other day. At the end of last year, Sage said that if if measures weren't uh, taken and further restrictions weren't introduced we would have a situation where between 600 and 6,000 people a day would be would, would be dying. Mm. Now, firstly, yesterday, the, 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 the figures, I think it was 100 people. Tragic, though, that is, that is obviously way below what Sage were predicting. But the more, the, 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 the more important point is, what practical utility does that have for ministers? What practical utility does that have for policymakers? If, if, if a scientist sits in front of you and says, Minister, if you don't take this action, between 600 and 6,000 people are going to die. Yeah. It's, it's such a wide range. Mm. It is meaningless because the, that is the difference between the NHS completely collapsing and the NHS not collapsing. Yes. And, and you, know, and you and can't we, possibly make a judgment on that kind of margin exactly. of error, can you? No, exactly. Yeah, it has to be something. It has to be data and information that ministers and all the rest of us can use in a, in a in a practical sense. And what you see with this, I mean, this is the other issue that we have. They will make these predictions. These predictions will then be shown to be completely, completely wrong. Mm. And they and their defenders will then suddenly turn around and say, <clears throat> uh, will say, look, it, it, it wasn't really a prediction. It was a projection. Yeah. But, but the question is, if when they get when they get the the, the the predictions or projections right their defenders say see they were right when they get them wrong their defenders say oh they were only projections how in a practical sense therefore are we meant to manage and, and form a rational judgment on whether these people are actually doing a good mm. job or whether frankly they're just sticking their finger in the air and well, making it. And I, and I think it's actually worse than that, Dan, because you're absolutely right that they have been way off on almost every one of their predictions. But I mean, I was listening over the course of uh, between Christmas and New Year, and I heard a couple of these sage characters obviously speaking in a personal capacity, as they always do. I'm like, well, why are you speaking at all if you're not speaking for sage, unless you want to make a name for yourself or write a book, maybe. But these people were going, well, of course, we'd be delighted if we're wrong. And it's like, well, 
That's not really the basis on which to run government policy or the basis on which to make out that you're a scientist. You know, being delighted to be wrong while threatening that the world is about to collapse around us is hardly the way forward. And I think we should absolutely do away with anyone who gets it that wrong and just say, well, why would we take anything you say seriously ever again? Well, I, I mean, I, I, I mean, I, I completely agree. I think I think certainly at this point now, and I, I, you remember, I mean, I was on, you know, at the very start of this, I was saying we have no option. Yeah, we have to listen to the experts. Yes, fine, and we did that. But what we've seen throughout this, I mean, let's set aside the the, the 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 projections for a second. Let's just look at some of the basic the basic science. We we were told at the start of this crisis, masks don't work. Yeah, masks have no utility. Right. We're now being told they are they're an essential they're an essential part of all this. Thing. Well, they're kind of saying that they help now, aren't they? So they yeah, might exactly. not they might not make much difference, but they make a bit of difference. So you but should they, do it. But they are. So, but we are told they are so important that we need legislation to in to ensure that we are forced to wear them in various in various settings. Yeah. We, the other one that gets me is we were literally told at the beginning of the crisis there was no utility in shutting mass events mm. not because of the nature of of, of covid but the, the 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 basic science said if you went to a, if you went to a, a mass event you would still only be exposed to a certain limited number of people mm. and therefore there was it, it had no practical benefit in stopping the spread now we're being told <sighs> shutting shutting mass events has got to be a fundamental part of of of, of what we're doing right. now uh, again, we, we we have to respect the science. We have to respect mm. the science. But we can't just just park our own judgment and just suspend disbelief. We saw what they were saying at the time. We've seen what they've been saying since. We saw what they were saying at the end of last mm. year in terms of their predictions for what would happen to the NHS if new measures weren't introduced. New measures weren't introduced. And, and we have to start having a discussion about yeah. that now. I mean, there I'm are not, two. There are two for me. For me, doing Dan, away with the science, it's getting better science. Yeah. Well, for me, Dan, there are two things here. I mean, the Spectator did a piece, I think, um, last week about Jenny Harry's and the five things that she got completely wrong uh, over the course of uh, of the pandemic. And I accept that some things were not known. And uh, but what I don't accept is that when they told us these things with such certainty, they didn't put that proviso in it. They didn't say we're not sure about this. They didn't say, and I understand why they can't do that as well. But there's only two things that we know for sure. One is um, that the lockdowns have had an incredibly bad effect on all sorts of things, including the NHS, including the health of the nation, including business and including uh, all manner of services that have not been provided while those lockdowns were, were involved. And it's also cost us an absolute bucket load of money. What we also know is that almost every measure that we have taken to stop the spread of COVID hasn't worked because it's spreading at will. What we do about that now may be different to what we would have done a year ago. But those are the only two real certainties, aren't they? Well, I, I mean, I think you made a very good point. I mean, particularly in relation to Jenny Harris. Remember what Jenny Harris told us just before Christmas. She said, "I, I, I can't remember the precise words, but 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 she basically said this is the most dangerous phase mm. of the pandemic we have seen so far yes. because of the emergence of Omicron." Remember what Chris Whitty said in that press conference just before Christmas. And I, I, this isn't hindsight. I raised this at the time. Yeah. He said. There's a lot we don't know about Omicron, but everything we do know is bad. Mm. Now, that simply was factually wrong. At precisely the moment he was saying that, we had data coming out of South Africa 
we had reports from the frontline health professionals in South Africa who have been through every stage of the COVID crisis today. And they were all saying very explicitly, this is very different. Mm. What we are seeing in hospitals in relation to this strain of the virus is very different before. And it is quite clearly much milder and it's having a very different impact. Now, the, if you remember, Chris Whitty literally said, anybody attempting to, to listen to what the South African scientists mm. and health professionals say were, was over-interpreting yeah. what was happening. We've now got the data. They were right. Yes. They and were he, absolutely 100% right. And he dismissed the South African data um, because it suited his purpose to do it, because that was around about the same time that he said you should uh, sort of pick and choose what prioritise your social contacts, which pretty much killed off the pre-Christmas hospitality business because everybody cancelled all their Christmas parties and nobody went out. Well, I mean, again, you know, in, in, in Chris Whitty's defence, right, he Sir was Chris clearly, Whitty, right, please. Sir Chris Whitty, he was quite <laughs> clearly trying to prioritise public health. Fine. But the point is, this is, again, the thing that frustrates me. We are constantly told by the by the, the, the scientists, defenders, we have to have a fact-based discussion. Yeah. We have to have an evidence-based discussion. When Chris Whitty said the only things we know about Omicron are bad, that was factually wrong. Yeah. That was a factually wrong statement. So we've got to make our mind up. Are we going to go through, continue to go through this, having an evidence-based discussion, or are we just going to say uh, what we we start here a lot more of now is well we have to act on the precautionary principle, so we always have to look we have to look at the worst case scenario and we have to act accordingly. The problem with that is on that basis we're never going to unlock. Yeah. Oh, well, let's talk let's talk a little bit about that because because the biggest problem we're currently facing, Dan, is not coronavirus, is not the Omicron variant, is not people going to hospital and overwhelming it. It's people not being in hospital to work. It's people not driving trains. It's people not going to school because the teachers are uh, uh, staying at home because they've tested positive. A million people uh, supposedly self-isolating. That's the problem that we need to address. And that's going to cause massive problems for the economy, for our kids, uh, for our health service and everything else. And they need to address that, surely, don't they? Well, they do. But again, obviously, there is a balance here. If people are literally off sick in very very high numbers with with covid with omicron then that's going to have an impact itself so there's a balance to be struck but you've again you've touched on a what you know i was talking about this uh, on social media yesterday mm. about what i think is an, another significant part of this is the way the narrative around this whole the, the omicron crisis keeps shifting and in a sense how the goalposts keep shifting mm. so when it started off it was very clear as we said with jenny harris this was the, the the worst strain we'd seen, potentially the biggest biggest crisis. It was potentially going to cause very large numbers of deaths. Then we moved off that, and then it became okay. It may not cause large numbers of deaths, but it will co potentially cause a very high number of hospital hospitalizations. Then we moved away from that and thought, well, it's not going to cause quite the number of hospitalizations that we saw, but the crisis will come will come because we will have so many. Uh, NHF staff, staff members um, off, that that will create the crisis. We're now kind of starting to move off that a bit because whilst there has been an impact, it, again, it's not quite as bad as as, as, as some people were, were, were predicting. Mm. We're now starting to move off into, well, yeah, it might not actually be a, a crisis for the NHS in the way we thought, but what about for example, long COVID, mm. that's going to that's gonna be an issue. And I think also, and we've certainly seen this, I think over the last couple of days, shifting away from Omicron is a, 
is, is crisis for the NHS to, well, the NHS is always in crisis because it's underfunded and, you know, the Tories are undermining it and previous governments have undermined it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Fine, if we want to have that debate, we can have that. But that's very, very different from saying, here is Omicron. It's this terrible new variant. We need to lock down the yeah. country because the NHS is going to completely co- collapse in the next right. couple of weeks. Yes, and I think the debate actually should be going the other way. But stay with us, Dan. We've got to take a little break. Uh, we'll come back with Dan Hodges from the Mail on Sunday because the question is this, surely not should we be locking down more, but should we not be lifting the restrictions more and getting more people back to work? Talk radio. Shoot your shot. Danger. Slippery people. Uncomplicated life rubric for hungry thought thinkers. Rock the House of Commons. It's talk radio. The home of common sense. Welcome back to the Independent Republican, Mike Graham, right here on Talk Radio. It is the first real proper working day uh, of the new year. <clears throat> Excuse me. And uh, we're talking to Dan Hodges, who is working, Man on Sunday commentator, to me, who is also working. Uh, but I've got to tell you this, um, Dan. How about uh, this particular tweet that I've got from Dion? He says, in the construction industry, I don't know anyone who tests themselves a lot, who has days off isolating. I'm guessing this is because we wouldn't get paid uh, for the pleasure of sitting on our backsides at home. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. Also, I've got a note from a civil servant who says... We've been told that we can now self-certify for sickness leave and stay off until January the 25th without any kind of um, medical certificate. So, you know, I mean, that's where we are and that's where we shouldn't be. Well, I, I, I think there's a, there is another aspect of this that we do now need to start discussing, which is, you know, throughout the, the crisis, we've had this, you know, work from home discussion, work from home advice. We have to be honest about what that what we're actually talking about. We're actually talking about giving middle-class workers the opportunity to protect themselves and work from home mm. and an opportunity to work from home protectors that we're not giving uh, working-class workers, right? If, if, you, well, you I'm not sure that's true, though, because I don't know whether you would call a train driver a working-class worker, but train, well, no, drivers, but train drivers in the last um, sort of lockdown were more than happy not to drive trains. I mean, we were hearing stories, albeit anecdotal, about people getting, you know, walking down the street and, get, and making sure they got pinged so they didn't have to go to work. No, but I mean, but 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 the reality is, I mean, I remember when I, you know, when I was, uh, you know, when I, I had the capacity to self-isolate, and we all did, uh, train drivers were still working because they were having to take essential worker workers in, and essential workers ha- did have to go in. No, but, no, but there was a shortage of them at various points because at various points, it's an easy thing to take to take time off from a job that you get good sick pay on. Yeah, I, 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 yeah, I'm not, I'm not, yeah, I'm not going to go there. I mean, if there's evidence of that, I'd want to, I'd want to see the evidence of that. Well, I, there's I, no, well, there's no trains running into Victoria from Gatwick or any point south uh, because of the fact that they have a shortage no, of train but, drivers. They're all self isolating You're not going to tell me that some of them are not just ringing up, going, "Oh, I've tested positive. I'm no, off I'm for sure, a week." Look, look, I'm sure, I'm, I'm, I'm sure some of them are. But, but if we're going to say. Look, or you know, if we if we if we're going to create paint a picture where we're saying all these train drivers are, are swinging the lead, I want to see evidence they're right. swinging the lead before I'm going to. Well, well, let me let me go around the other way then and say, let's face it, all of them are not all, all of all of them are not genuine, shall we say? No, well, I'm sure, with in any situation where people there, there will always be people who who, who call in sick who, who aren't sick. But as I said, there's a more fundamental. I think there's a more fundamental point here, which is. If you work on a supermarket checkout, you don't get the opportunity to work from home. If you're a bin man, you don't get an opportunity. Mm. Obviously, if you're a nurse, you don't get the opportunity to work from home. You know, and and this is what we we need to talk about. And we are now dividing society basically along class lines between those who are able to work from home and are able to protect themselves. And they are also the people who, in the main, advocate 
the concept of working from home but we're not extending that to people in people in other professions and i think it's you know and i think we need to we we need to start to start talking about that it, it, we, we can't have a situation again it was all right at the start of the crisis we cannot have a situation in perpetuity where we where something comes along and we say right okay here's a dangerous new variant the middle classes go home protect themselves and are then served by the working classes who empty their who empty their bins uh not this week. Deliver stuff to deliver stuff to their houses. They then take the risk of, of catching the, the the virus and ending up in hospital and possibly dying. While the while, while the middle class is at home, we, 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 we can't we can't build a society on that basis. No, no, you really can't. And also, um, if the bins aren't collected, and that's apparently the case in an awful lot of uh, councils at the moment, again because people are self isolating at home, they can't do their jobs. You know. There does need to be some kind of, I think, government statement made, which 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 changes all of that, because otherwise we're just going to going to go on forever. But listen, I know we're, we're short of time. I want to ask you before we let you go, Dan. Uh, Sir Keir Starmer is making yet another uh, visionary speech, apparently uh, around about eleven o'clock. We we're not proposing to take most most of it. Um, he says that uh, Labour will create a new Britain based on security, prosperity, and respect. Sounds good, right? Yeah, well, again, it's, you know, it's classic here, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's you know, it, it, you know, it can be positive. Say at least it's a step forward from what we had before. You know, you'd never hear those words coming out of Jeremy Corbyn's mouth. But equally, being not being Jeremy Corbyn isn't a particularly high bar. No. And, you know, we've had a lot of these from Keir. We're going to have a lot of patriotism talk from Keir. But I think as ever with Keir, you know, his view of patriotism is... You know, we have to we have to be patriotic towards the NHS, for mm, example. Yeah, I don't agree with that. I think we need to start having a serious discussion about the NHS. Otherwise, we're going to keep having these crises year after year. But what 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 it shows is the priority of the speech this morning, it seems to me, is Keir Starmer trying to sell Britain's patriotism to the Labour Party yeah. rather than trying to sell the Labour Party's patriotism to Britain. And, and, and until he can invert that and actually start to speak to the country more than and prioritise speaking to the country over prioritising speaking to his party. I'm not buying the yeah. idea that Starmer's made some sort of great, great, fantastic... I don't think he ha- I think that's exactly what the problem is, is that the country doesn't really see him as a leader, doesn't really believe what he has to say, doesn't really know what he stands for. And no matter how many times he tells them what he stands for, they just don't care. And still, because of the problems internally in the Labour Party, when you put Starmer into social media, and I know that's not uh, by any means a guide, the first hashtag you get is Starmer out. Yeah, I mean, obviously, that's because he's still got a lot of people in the Labour Party who are Corbynites yeah. who will never forgive him for for, 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 for taking over from for, from their hero. But I think what we've seen in terms of politics over the last last few last few weeks is a situation. You know, it, 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 it's fundamentally Boris messing things up rather than Keir Starmer making a breakthrough. And this year, sitting back and waiting for Boris to mess things up isn't isn't, in my view, going to be enough. No, and I mean, you can do that every day if you wish. Dan, listen, good to talk to you. Thanks very much indeed. Dan Hodges from The Man on Sunday there, uh, sending us off uh, on the show this morning. We need to talk about this uh, lead swinging facility that is being made available to civil servants, that's being made available to people who work uh, in jobs where there's very, very good sick pay. I mean, if you can write yourself a sick note until January the 25th, you're going to do it, aren't you? If you're going to get paid not to work, of course you're going to do it. Because that is the British way. And it's very unfortunate. And I think it's dreadful. And I think it's disappointing. And I think it's actually downright unpatriotic. You should be at work. You should not be at home. If there's nothing wrong with you, get on with it. 
Talk Radio. The home of common sense. Permanent. Persuasive. Profound. The machine code of modern thinking. Now with 0% drift and dither. Radio with an answer for everything. Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. Keir Starmer's making a speech at 11 o'clock. <laughs> uh, I'm sure it'll be great. He'll be setting out his vision for Britain. I think he's done that already, hasn't he? Hasn't he set out his vision for Britain? I thought he did that a while ago. Maybe he's got a different vision for Britain now. Anyway, uh, we'll be checking in uh, with Sir Keir Starmer to see uh, precisely what it's all about. But before we do anything, and before we take some calls, let me just ask you about parking. Because it turns out, right, that some rogue parking authorities, private parking firms, have been handing out 22,000 tickets each and every day. Now, you've probably fallen foul of these characters at some time or another. You park on what you think is a public car park. Uh, Maybe you pay for your ticket and maybe you overrun it by five minutes or maybe ten minutes. Maybe you get a ticket from them. Maybe you get bailiffs at your door. Um, But apparently the total for the financial year... Uh, they reckon uh, will come in to something above 8.4 million tickets a year, right? Which is extraordinary. 163 firms requested car owner records between April and September. The biggest buyer was Parking Eye with nearly 900,000 records. Now, what they do is they go to the DVLA and they ask for their uh, information, which they have collected on you because you drive a car with a number plate on it, which can be obviously registered either to you or to the registered owner or whatever. But the point is the DVLA charges £2.50 every time they give these records out. Now, I would say this. If it's a private company, they should have no business actually accessing your private records. The DVLA is a government organisation. They've got no business profiteering from us. We already pay them road tax. We already pay them all sorts of ridiculous fees to do all sorts of things. We should not be giving them the information that they can then sell on. Because if they want to sell our information, they should be paying us, shouldn't they? But I want to hear your stories today, guys, about whether uh, you've taken on these cowboy uh, parking ticket operators and whether or not you've been able to beat them at their own game. Because some people will say, well, of course, it's not an enforceable ticket, but it's not. However, it can affect your credit rating if you don't do it the right way. Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. So, very happy New Year to Laura Dodsworth. Happy New Year. I'm going to keep saying it till it is happy, by the way. Well, I'm happy. I mean, I mean, I'm always happy at the start of things, and then we see how it goes <laughs> by the end of I it. I know. I'm fizzing with excitement about things to talk to you about, though, because I've, yes. ca- I've come in with ideas. You, right. you always whiz over your ideas. Laura, let's talk about this. Mm. And then you just mentioned parking fines. Well, boy, could I bang on about well, parking do. fines. Well, do. Please do. We'll start, kick off with it then. <laughs> and, but also trains. Yeah. So, I couldn't get my normal train today because there's... Hello. Victoria Station is completely shut. Yes. yes. So I, I get the train to London London Bridge, right. fine, but all, all the timetables change because mm. there's no Victoria trains. I'm just astonished. Well, I saw entire... this at the weekend, right? They've decided, they were doing some works, apparently, which, which were supposed to stop on the 2nd of January. Mm. Um, they're now being extended to the 10th for some unknown reason. And then they added on top of that that because of the uh, self-isolation rules, they haven't got enough drivers. So there's no Gatwick Express at all until the 10th of January. So good luck getting to Gatwick. You'd have to take the slow train that goes from London Bridge. And also, everything coming into Victoria doesn't go to Victoria anymore. It stops at sort of, I don't know, Crawley or somewhere. 
It's ridiculous. It, it just it's feels mad. really backwards. And, and Here they, we are, one of the major capital cities in the world, right. and one of the major train stations is shut. Yeah. How bizarre. I know. How weird. Embarrassing. Yeah, so on to one transport disaster to another, parking yeah. fines. Yeah, go on. I mean, I just have to say something about this. All these... Um, all these cowboy firms mm. who are trying to fleece people. I've I've had a couple of fines in over the last year, which I thought were really unfair. Yeah. One was for parking um, in the wrong spot, apparently, but but the lines on the ground were kind of dark grey oh, yeah. right. on a slightly darker grey surface, mm. and all the signs about where you could park were in really really small print. Yeah. that was fine. Um, and then uh, a and was that a, was that a sort of a local council one then? No, it's one of these cowboy parking right. firms. Right. Parking Eye apparently is one of the worst. P- parking Eye, I've had a little run in with them. Although I have to admit they have just cancelled my charge, but I had to go to the trouble of letters and complaints yeah. to get it cancelled. And it's yeah, it's it's a, it's a sort of time-consuming thing, isn't it? It is time-consuming, but I think the problem is that the companies that are using these firms. So in my case, it was in a Lidl car park. Right. I'm a loyal little customer, yeah. you know. A lot of people say they think I'm a waitress girl. I'm not. Yeah. Lidl and Aldi all the way. Listen, I'm, I, will, I will buy stuff anywhere. Where, mm-hmm. any, anywhere I can go that's not particularly busy and is easy to do, that, that I will do. And I, but there was a new Lidl, I think, that opened up actually near me uh, in south-east London. And I went there and I didn't understand the system because there was no sign that said, if you're parking here, what you have to do um, is get your parking validated before you leave. So I didn't know. So I went and bought a load of stuff, drove away. A week later, I got a bill for 90 quid. Parking fine. Exactly. And this is the thing. So in the, in the little car park, the, the signs around the edge are in tiny, tiny prints. Now, if I'd known that mm. there's a very strict time limit, I'd have abided right. by it. Other car parks you go in and it's in big letters and that's fine. So it just feels a bit like a scam and it's mm. put me off little. It so, is a scam. So, you know... The, I mean, I got off that because I showed them my receipt and I said, look, I'm sorry, I didn't know I was supposed to do this. I didn't see any sign that told me I had to, you know, mm. you know scan my ticket in any way, shape or form. So the companies that employ firms like mm. Parking, I need to be more careful because there's a there's a comeback on their own brand. Mm. I now think that Lidl are trying, you know, partly they're so cheap because they're making all this money from parking yeah. fines. So it's not good the for other thing that's the happening, company. And this is not necessarily a private company, although sometimes they are run by private companies. I've noticed, particularly in parts of London, um, they're now bringing in parking restrictions in roads where there weren't any. Yeah. You know, so, for example, you could park for free in a road and then mm. suddenly you wake up one morning and they've actually decided to make it... Um, you know, you have to pay to be there and you have to buy a residence parking permit. Yeah. They did this at Edinburgh when I lived up there and they sold more permits than there were spaces. So having a permit didn't even guarantee you a space. I know. Such a rip-off. I think the thing is that some of the people who are planning these sorts of measures have a really idealistic, utopian vision of car-free cities. Yes. Now, um, I'm a writer, but I'm also a photographer. And the last time I had to travel into London for photography work, yeah. it involves me using a car because yeah. I have kit. Yes. And with paying for my congestion charges and my parking, I spent over £100 yeah. Can't you get just one to of come into London bike, to work. Bikes. You know those bikes that they just, you see people? There's ridiculous contraptions being yeah. driven around London. No, now. lighting gear is too big and heavy. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm coming in from Surrey, yeah. so no. So you haven't got and three days to cycle in. <laughs> well, you know, at some point, maybe I'm just going to be hauling my stuff on the back of a donkey. Yeah, I mean, it, I think that's what they'd like. It's very regressive. So people who run small businesses, yeah. independent freelancers like me, we, we do need to use yeah. cars. And this utopianist vision of a car-free mm. society doesn't work for everybody. Well, it doesn't I work drive, for business. I mean, I drive a lot in London at the moment just simply because, one, it's quite quiet because there's nobody around. But also, mm. two, I'm not particularly keen to get on the tube. I'm not particularly keen to get on a bus. 
you know, because that's where lots of people are who might want to give me Omicron or whatever. So, you know, if I've got a nice car to drive around in, that's fine. But I find myself in parts of London now and you can't actually work out whether you're allowed to go there or not mm. because there's a sign that says buses only, bikes only. Yeah. You know, I actually ended up in a one-way situation. This is a few months ago. I was trying to get to my dentist and I was in Tottenham Court Road, which apparently now has gone the other. It used to be northbound only. Now it's mm. two-way. And then Gower Street used to be, you know, one way only, now it's two. And I was like, I ended up going down this road anyway, and it was literally straight ahead, no entry, no right turn, no left turn. I literally had to reverse back out. And I'm like, what's the point of this road? It's very confusing. It doesn't go anywhere. Yeah. They keep changing all the driving rules. Mm. It just makes it extra confusing. Yeah. But anyway, I must apologise. I have taken you on a detour you away have. from the things we were going to we talk about. We were going to talk about, yes. Well, parking talk. fines, well, they make me so cross. Yeah, well, we want to hear from some of the other people who have had those problems as well. So do bring, yeah. bring us those calls. I'll tell you what, should we go and have a listen to, to Keir Starmer just to break the, uh, the, uh, the, 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 the subject matter? Let's if we must, listen. if we must. New police hubs will be visible in every community. <laughs> we will introduce a new tough approach to closing down drug dens with new powers for local police and local authorities. He obviously hasn't heard that Sadiq Khan wants to legalise cannabis. He's, oper- he's asking for police hubs to be set up. Oh, he's, so, he's, so you can arrest all the people that say, oh, but I thought it was OK now to smoke dope. He's so out of touch. Isn't he? He, and he was just saying... Sorry, um, he was. He was just saying um, in the media that the only way to keep schools open is to vaccinate and ventilate and mask. Yeah, what is this rubbish? And, you know, there was a, there was a great piece in The Express the, uh, the other day from a professor whose name I've forgotten, apologies to the professor, saying that the infection fatality rate now for, for COVID is like seasonal flu. It's 10 times less dangerous for 70-year-olds than it was a year ago. Right. And for young people, it's so mild that they're more at risk of being run down by a car and mm. killed than they are of, of yeah. dying from COVID. So what is Keir Starmer talking yeah. about? But it's the same as the government's line, isn't it? Because I think I was listening to uh, Nadim Zahawi the other day on Julia's show, and he said, well, the thing is, we need to keep schools open. So mm. we have to keep wearing masks. Well, sorry, I don't see the correlation between the two. No, it's a logical fallacy. Mm. It's not as though the only way to keep schools open is with masks because the government still hasn't put forward evidence for masks. Because they don't have it. Because they don't have it. Yes. Because you better believe if they did have it, we'd be hearing about it. What I'd say is that masks have come to represent a whole range of values and signals, mm. and there's still no hard evidence behind them. No. So I know from interviewing people from my book, A State of Fear, and also more recently, that masks were supposed to uh, signal various things. Mm. In fact, if you listened to an interview with David Halpin, who's the head of the government's nudge unit in a select committee last year, he talked about masks being a signal. Yeah. Um, Professor Neil Ferguson has said something similar about them. The idea is it keeps up, keeps alive this idea that we need to be yes, careful. It in makes a way you they, remember there's a pandemic. Yeah, it? and in a way, therefore, they kind of symbolise fear. They're keeping mm. fear in our face, yeah. literally. Um, and more and more children I'm hearing about. I mean, we've got a story this morning about many, many more children suffering from eating disorders. But I also hear, and this is anecdotal information from friends of mine, parents that I know who have told me stories about their own children or friends' children who are really anxious and who don't, you know, are scared to go out, don't necessarily want to go back to school, don't want to go back to school and have to wear a mask because they think it might be dangerous. You know, the effect of all of this is so detrimental to children's health. Oh, my goodness, so much. I mean, I've got teenage sons, and I don't want to talk about the impact on them. Mm. They'd kill me. But I think there's a real kind of 
cultural divide almost among young totally. people. You get the young people who don't care, who mm. I mean, they kind of see the level of danger to themselves for what it is. And I'd say they have a more proportionate response now. And then there are some that are really frightened. I know of a teenage boy who can't leave the house mm. anymore because he's he's got OCDs. Yeah. He's really neurotic yeah. about it. Um, yeah, the, what, we, what we've done to young people is unforgivable. I'm actually really angry in this case with the teaching unions because you get the sense that they're the ones who are really forcing this measure, that we're masking back in schools again because there, there is no evidence. Boris Johnson himself said last year that the idea of wearing a mask in a classroom is nonsensical. Right. I mean, it's completely self-evident. Of course wearing a mask is going to interfere with communication, development. I know that's a bit less important. And that's aside but... from, from whatever sort of physical problem you might develop, because it can't be good for your skin. It can't be good for your, the, your oral health, for want of a better phrase. You know, it's not good for you. No. To cover your face up. It's like asking somebody to sleep face down in a pillow for eight hours, isn't it? I, I just can't believe that we're expecting our young people, the next generation, the people we should be doing everything to protect and help, to wear masks all yeah. day in schools. There's a campaigning group, Us For Them, and they've, um, they're have they asking MPs to wear a mask for eight hours a day in solidarity with children. I actually don't want to see that happen. No. I don't want to see anybody wearing no. a mask for eight hours a day unless they really have to for yeah. some reason. It's a bit like those people that sew their mouths up. You know, I don't really fancy like that sort of direct action. Surely it'd be better just to set, not send your kid to school, wouldn't it? Uh, well, or just say your child is exempt. Uh, yeah. One of mine gets a headache from wearing a mask all yeah. day, so I've said he's but exempt. But this is what I'm he's saying, not, though. Is, what we're seeing now, though, is schools being really hard line on it and saying, you must prove why you're exempt. You must have a medical exemption. Now, outside, you don't get asked that. You mm. know, if you're exempt from wearing a mask... In an office building, you don't have to prove it. If you're exempt in a, a shop, you don't have to prove mm. it. If you get on the tube, you don't have to prove it. Why should yeah. you have to prove it in school? Yeah, I think the, but the problem is the power relationship, power relationship is so different for young people. There was um, a Guardian writer, Gabby Hinscliffe, was saying she doesn't think teenagers will be bothered about this. It's just a certain kind of adult. I think that's a really easy sweeping statement right. to make. Teenagers don't feel empowered to complain because and stand Gabby, up for themselves I mean, she in ha schools. Gabby has been a teenager for a long time. I don't know whether she has any teenagers, but I mean, you know, that's a bit of a sweeping statement, isn't it? It can be really hard for them to step out from the group and mm. be different and be one of the only ones in a mask uh, yeah. without a mask in a classroom. Yeah. That's a really difficult situation for And an awful lot, lot of, of the kids are basically bullied into doing it. Let's face it, that's the word. Because they're bullied by the school, bullied mm. by their peers, um, uh, because they feel as though they can't say no, because mm. they don't want to be the odd one out, you know. What's actually really frustrating about this is that we're having a very illiberal and I think cruel measure imposed on mm. children, probably because of the teaching unions yeah. forcing this and the government right. pandering to them. But the fact is, Mike, there's been a virtually unlimited budget for research during the pandemic. The government absolutely could have done um, cluster studies, randomised controlled trials for masks yeah. in households, which is where secondary attacks mainly happen, and in schools. They could have done it, but they haven't. Mm. And I know from one um, anonymous government insider on a COVID task force who spoke to me that the reason they haven't is because they know masks mm. don't work. The research wouldn't show any Well, benefit. if masks worked, why is it that Omicron is spreading so fast when so many people are wearing them? And why mm. is it that in all the countries in Europe where they've had mask mandates for much longer than us, they've got worse numbers than we have? Well, you can just look at Scotland and England, mm. actually. If you look at the latest seven-day rolling averages, the nation in the United Kingdom with the lowest seven-day rolling average of case rates per thousand is England. Yeah. And we haven't had masks in classrooms, and we've arguably got the most relaxed COVID measures. Mm. So that shows that masks everywhere yes, aren't affecting the seven-day rolling average. they brought the masks in as part of Plan B, didn't they? They brought the masks back mm. as part of Plan B. It doesn't seem to have stopped the spread. Well, that's 
Because they, they don't. Because they don't stop the spread. <laughs> you know, there can the only spread. be one conclusion. No, right? I know. It's not because nobody's wearing them. Because quite a lot of people are, especially mm. if you get on a tube and you see that. But, you know, it doesn't make any difference. Yeah, it's it's just really shocking what we've done to young people. And um, I know something you wanted to talk about today was eating disorders. Well, because NHS and... England has said that over the period of April to October 2021, 4,238 hospital admissions for children under 17 for eating disorders. Now, that's admissions to hospital. That means it's pretty serious, right, by that stage. Yeah. And that's up 41% mm. from the previous year. Yeah, there was a very sharp increase in the first the first year of the pandemic. We're going back in history now, mm. aren't we? Oh, such a long time. Um, and there's an eating disorder charity called Beat who said that they had the um, highest demand on their services at the peak of the pandemic, mm. by which they mean the first lockdown. But this year, they're expecting the greatest number of hospitalisations from eating disorders mm. ever. And it's very obvious to me, having teenagers and, and knowing lots of teenagers, that the impact on anxiety, on loneliness, this kind of really weird life they were living, yeah. is going to force an effect in other areas. And eating disorders is is one of those yeah. those areas for young people. I think that you're making a good point. The hospitalisations is only one part of it. That's the tip of the iceberg. Yeah, that's, that's probably people, another, another maybe three times as many as that who don't go to hospital. That's people who need hospitalisations. Right. I've got a friend who's, whose son went to hospital for an eating disorder. Mm. By the time you get a bed in a hospital for an eating disorder, it's quite bad. He was in danger of his organs failing. Wow. So you can have a low-lying and... Well, I think low-lying is even the wrong term, but a milder form of an eating disorder mm. that doesn't require hospitalisation. So yeah, I think the, the true number is probably going to be a lot bigger. Oh, for sure. No um, question. And all the funding for eating disorders hasn't been going into eating disorders either. I don't There's know where it's surprise. been going, but it's not been going into eating disorders. And that's pre-pandemic. It's so probably goodness been going knows. into giving people boosters, probably. That's where all the money's going. Yeah, but talking about money, that's the thing is that you'll find that when these charities talk about the issue in the media, they'll talk about what they want the government to do mm. um, and the money they want the government to spend. I mean, actually, I come around to the point of view, I just want the government to do a lot less. Yeah. That doesn't mean we don't need NHS support for eating disorders, but there's, there's two things here. There's treating the problem once we've got it, and then there's tackling the root mm. cause. The root cause of this rise in eating disorders is lockdown. Yeah. Stop locking down. Right. Never do it again. Acknowledge the harms. Acknowledge that we're social beings. And young people were hurt really badly by not going to school, not being able to see their friends, not being able to see their family, not being able to play sport, all the rest of right. it. That's the problem. But the charities don't want to say this. And no. Of course they don't because of their relationship with government, yeah. with funding, with media. Right. But they're not talking about the root cause. The and root also cause for is some the reason, lockdown. by their nature, they have to be in favour of lockdown. I don't get it. Um, we've got Lord Dosworth here. We've got more to talk to her about. We're going to talk about Sex in the City, I think coming yes. up uh, we're also going to take a bit more of Keir Starmer's vision for the future uh, just because it makes us laugh and you need a laugh in these uh, difficult times do you not this is Talk Radio Talk Radio powered by common sense activated by opinion bristling with debate first fast freedom of opinion unbelievably realistic all because the nation loves Talk Radio Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham, right here until one o'clock. Richard Tice is in for Ian Collins. We've got Sir Keir Starmer speaking, and he's still speaking. Let's see what he's talking about now. ...lies ahead for this country, but only if we have the courage to create a new Britain. A country in which you and your family get the security, the prosperity and the respect that you deserve. My contract with the British people will set out how we can create that new Britain. Thank you for listening, and Happy New Year to everyone. 
Thank oh, we, we just got the end. Well, that's probably the perfect place to well, join, Mike. he's going to have a new contract with the British public. Great. Looking forward to that. Oh. I, he's the it's most... depressing, he's so, isn't it? He's, he's so, so uninspiring. I'm so disappointed yeah. that these are the choices we have. And he's standing in front of a flag because obviously that means he must be patriotic. Yeah, it's the new thing they're trying, yeah, isn't it? it's the new thing. Why don't you just wear a Union Jack suit? That's what I'd do. And go, look, <laughs> let's go, guys. You know, Britain is a proud country. And... Uh, it was a sort of NHS on the back or something, you know. <laughs> Big rainbow. Big rainbow. Yeah, yeah, why not? Anyway, let's talk about Sex and City. Far we more should, yeah, because um, well, I thought there wasn't really much on TV over right. Christmas. It was a bit... Oh, Christmas. I have to say something. Yes. Before Christmas, you know, you asked about my Christmas plans, and mm. I think I said I was looking forward to it in all of its dysfunctional, alcoholic glory. Yes. My mum was listening, and um, this was mentioned over Christmas. Were you in trouble for that? Well, she bought me a bottle of slow gin because I also nice. said how I couldn't find any slows uh, on the different thing. Right. Great. I uh, did drink it, so right. had some of the dysfunctional so what alcoholic did you do? What did you do with it? What did you do with the slow gin? Did you just drink I it straight? I quite like it neat and room okay. temperature, right. but it's also nice for tonic. I yeah. had it both ways. Okay. Both ways. Um, nice with a bit of Prosecco or, mm. or Carver or something yes. too. However you like, your slow gin is good. Yes. So um, I had a very um, civilised, elegant and heartwarming, lovely Christmas with my mum. Mm, nice. Yes. Good. Just going to say that. Thank you, mummy. So there wasn't much on TV um, and I was quite excited that the reboot of Sex and the yeah. City is out called And Just Like That. Yes. And... I've only kind of fitfully caught bits of it as Have I've you? walked into a room and then I'm out again. Now, did you used to watch Sex and the City? I did watch Sex and the City when okay. it was out the first time around, yeah. Did you like it? I did. I did. I, was quite, I found it quite shocking, actually. Oh, bless times. you. Bless your little cotton socks. I know. Socks. Bless my little sort of Catholic upbringing. Yes. I was well, like, blimey. You know you can do that on television. Well, that was part of the fun, mm. you know. It was raunchy. It was irreverent. It was genuinely funny. It was disruptive. It was sexy. It was very of its time. Now, this reboot is also very of its time, but in a quite disastrous it way. It doesn't look good to me. It is not good. So Also, I'm, Samantha's not in it. Samantha's not in it. She's the best character. Which is kind of one of the reasons I watched it. She always delivered the most sort of zingy one-liners. Yeah. Now, there have been some good zingy one-liners, but they're not delivered by the Samantha, so they kind of only half work. Right. There's one where Miranda slips over on a used condom in her house. Right. Her son is having sex in the house. And Charlotte says at least he's using protection. And Carrie says that's seeing the condom as half full. So, you know, quite a funny line, mm. but it doesn't not quite work. because it's not. It, but it would be funny if Samantha said it. Yes. So, um, yesterday was episode five. Mm. And before the episode, they said there will be scenes of sexual nature. I thought, well, hallelujah. Right. We've had to wait for episode five. Do you think they're a bit frightened of the old taboo of uh, sex and age? I don't know. I, I think that they've just been kind of warming up, um, warming up to the sex. Mm. You know, the first four episodes were the foreplay, if you like. But the sex scene was a, well, was a lesbian Big sex scene. So that's moved out of on. The picture, isn't he? Yeah, he dies in episode one. Which is probably quite fortunate for the production company. That's given probably... what's happened. Oh, because well, otherwise they'd have been all over themselves, going, "Oh, we might have to cancel yes, it all." Won't because we? he's been hit. There's some accusations yes. being made about sexual harassment. Mm. I've don't, got no idea about those, but mm. that was actually one of the boldest things they did in the plot. Right. The other stuff they've done in the plot is really terrible. Basically, it, it used to be four white women mm. straight. Now this would never do in this day and age, no. would it? So the way they've brought it up to date. And the reason it's not working for me is they've gone too woke. Right. So each of the, these white, straight women is now kind of partnered with a new friend. Okay. All women of colour. Right. 
I don't know what the correct thing to say at the moment is. I think that's, I think that's okay. Okay. Yeah. Women of colour. Um, and one of them is, is non-binary, you know, right. obviously. Oh, really? So what oh, they're God. doing is they're bringing in these new characters in a kind of awkward, clunky way. I thought one of them about... became... Did one of them not get married off to another woman, though? Wasn't that the case? Or was that just... Was that my imagination? Maybe that's in your imagination. Oh, really? But, well, but it I, could I, be going to happen because Miranda's now had... Um, a sex scene with the um, non-binary mixed race person. Right. Okay. Who's female? Fe- well, you can't say that though. If they're I can say female, but I can't can say woman. I think. Oh really? Okay. Well, I'll take your word on that. You're but the it's expert. Just, it's just really awkward. What they're doing is bringing in these new characters. But it's like the bloody fireworks, isn't it? I mean, the fireworks at New Year's Eve. They had to get all these messages. In. It's like just put some fireworks up in the air and enjoy the, the show. You know, don't tell me about how brave the footballers were to take the knee. You know, don't tell me that, you know, we need to represent all people from all walks of life. You know, just put some fireworks up. So this is the... This is... This is... This is exactly gets to the heart of the problem. When something is about entertainment, when something is about creativity, and yeah. I'd say even a fireworks display is about creativity, they can be beautifully choreographed and Absolutely. creative. Creativity has to be from the heart. It has to be pioneering. It has to be inventive. It has to be fresh. If you're just trying to tie in themes to make a point, it feels clunky, it feels awkward, the exposition in this is stale, and it feels like it's been through perhaps a score of diversity people to check yes. that it ticked every single diversity checkbox. I wonder if there box. is. I bet you there is, in some form or other in the production office, there'll be somebody going, OK, tick, tick, tick. No, sorry, you're going to need a bit more of that. Yes. Um, a bit less of that. Mike, you know, there will be. There this will. already exists in Isn't publishing. That ridiculous? You get diversity readers for publishing companies. Right. And I think actually that this is killing TV programming and it's killing Well, that's literature. why the TV stuff at the weekend um, and all through Christmas was rubbish. I mean, the basic kind of what you might call terrestrial TV. I mean, I was the subject of almost every comedy sort of show review of the year, thanks to the concrete clip, right? And everybody did it the same way. You know, mm. oh, look at this idiot. You know, he's obviously right wing, so he's obviously stupid, and he thinks concrete can grow. What a moron. You know, and, you know, all the panellists fell about laughing. But none of them actually said anything interesting. Yeah. It's not, you know. it's not fresh. If somebody picks something, they think it works, and somebody else copies it. It's like same format, rinse and repeat. This is not creativity. No. And it's not working. You know, if we've got to the stage where J.K. Rowling can't be invited to the anniversary of her own creation yes. because she's not woke enough and Sex and the City which was genuinely irreverent funny and sexy right. has to be brought up to date by awkwardly dragging in every new race and gender idea possible it destroys the creativity yeah. so I was disappointed but the thing is I'm actually watching it because I feel like I have to watch the mm. car crash unfold yes. all the way through but I'm hating it right well maybe we'll have to get a sort of regular update from you so we'll <laughs> next week when you come we'll see whether you've liked it any more yeah it's but, it's getting better it's getting into its strides it helped there was a bit of sex actually mm. um but it's yeah it's, it's a bit awkward and they've made it too woke mm. and it's a pity it's the last thing that should have gone woke mm, absolutely woke in the city well Laura lovely to see you thank you very much indeed Laura Dosworth of course and her book which is still out there State of Fear still selling well uh, get it if you haven't read it or borrow somebody else's even but because we still need it Mike that's why it's still selling it's well it's still there because there is still a state of fear going on people are still being told to be frightened the independent republic of Mike Graham on talk radio
So many people uh, have been ripped off by many uh, of these parking companies, particularly those uh, which are running sort of private um, schemes, effectively, or sometimes operating uh, on behalf of supermarkets, sometimes operated on behalf of car parking companies. Um, and the problem is, is they can be incredibly aggressive. But we're getting uh, statistics in now that suggest that 22,000 tickets a day are being handed out uh, by these private parking firms. And an awful lot of people are quite frightened, uh, quite intimidated and quite often uh, find in error. Let's talk to Rebecca Ashton, Head of Policy and Research at I Am Roads Smart. Rebecca, very good morning to you. Welcome. Good morning, Graham. Thank you. This is quite an extraordinary number, isn't it? It's very large, isn't it? Um, and, you, you know, you have to ask yourself why. Um, is it the fact that there's just such poor signage? I don't believe that members of the public choose to park um, in, in such a bad place all the time. Yeah. I think there's definitely a case where we need to look at the signage. And of course, one of the, the major things is we're waiting for the code of practice um, and the information to go through the government at the moment. It's currently in front of ministers and we, we are long awaiting this approval. Yeah, I mean, could the government be more stringent with regulations? And if so, what should they be doing? Yes, I, I think there should be something. Um, it'll be interesting to see their code of practice, to see what could be developed further. But um, we need something. You know, there are a lot of companies out there who are charging people um, and who, who make it very difficult for people to actually understand where they should and where they mm. shouldn't park. So nice, clear signage yeah. um, and making sure that the government are very careful with who they decide to give our information to. You know, if you think there are, I think there are over 160 um, firms now that, that can get our details yeah. from yeah. The, the DVLA. And, you know, there are some, some very big companies involved in there. But just be careful about, you know, who we're giving permission to for, for the information. Well, the thing I think that I found quite um, nauseating, really, was that the DVLA charged £2.50 a time. So if these people are, gaining, are giving out 22,000 um, tickets a day and they're getting information from the DVLA, the DVLA is making a pretty penny uh, out of those of us who are being victimised by this. It certainly looks as if there's a fair amount of money coming in. Um, of course, what we don't know is is how much it costs for the DVLA to, to process this information. Well, they just have to tap um, it into a computer, don't they? I mean, I can't imagine it takes them long. Absolutely, but I imagine the programming behind that to make it all automated was was quite expensive. I have, I have no idea on actual costs. Mm. But, um, you know, it does need to be, something does need to be done about it. And I have no problem with the DVLA making a charge. But let's make sure that we're, the companies that are putting in for these charge are actually charging people um, effectively. And there's, there's no um, sneaky behaviour mm. going on here. Because at the moment, there seems to be no kind of uniform appeals process with each dif different firm. They operate a different sort of system, don't they? Yes, absolutely. And that's where we're hoping that when um, this this latest proposal passes through ministers, that there will be um, an, a nice, easy fix um, on that and an appeals process that everyone can deal with. And it makes it the same for all companies. So it doesn't matter where you're parked or who you're parked with. Mm. The appeals process should be the same. Yes, exactly right. And so what's the chance of this actually happening this year and, and what effect will it have? Because, I mean, I've seen various stories of, of, of the riches that are being made by these some of these companies, particularly the bigger ones. Uh, and I mean, they're making billions. Yes, they are. Um, I, I think really my advice to, to people is to really try and make sure that you're, you're parking where you are allowed to park. 
but we really do want the the ministerial approval and sign off on this on these proposals. Yeah. How long that will be, I'm afraid I I don't know. But, yeah, um, I was talking to Laura Dodsworth earlier about a situation that happened to me, which which fortunately was it was uh, sort of I appealed and they, and they and they scrapped it. But I went yeah. and, we went to a new Littles that had opened up without any idea that you were supposed to validate your, your parking while you were there. You just parked in a space, went and got your shopping, came back down. I suddenly got a bill for ninety quid. And I was like, well, there was no sign that told me that, that I could see. The next time I went back, I sort of found it. It was buried behind, you know, a couple of pillars as you walked in, only if you walked in a particular way. Yeah, Uh, absolutely. You know, better signage is certainly needed, letting people know what they're supposed to do. As I said at the beginning, I don't think people deliberately go out there to get a parking ticket. I mean, who would? But, you know, if we have clear signage, it can only help members of the public to, to stay within the rules. Um, and we, we all try and do that. But if the signage isn't clear, it is very unfair that people are getting caught out by that because they're, they're unfamiliar with yeah. the, the rules and regulations of one particular car park. And what rights do people have if they have been given one of these things and they think it's been given to them in error? Well, I would always say, you know, pay your fine uh, and then start your appeals process because everyone has slightly different terms and conditions, which we are, of course, hoping will change and there will be the the one complaint process for it. Mm. Um, But I would say, you know, make sure that you document everything and that you put everything out in in a very factual way when you send in your appeal, however you may decide to do that. Right. Okay. Thank you very much indeed. That's Rebecca uh, there, Ashton, Head of Policy and Research at I Am Road Smart because at the end of the day I mean the difficulty for an awful lot of people is they don't really quite know precisely what to do if you get one of these tickets because it can be quite intimidating and I've known of cases where suddenly if you don't pay the parking ticket and you just ignore it because some people think they can or they just refuse to pay it suddenly there's bailiffs turning up at the door banging your door down telling you that you know you're going to have your house taken away and all sorts of things that they can't actually do they don't have the right to do and even though in an awful lot of the cases it's not legal to actually collect the debt it is in fact uh, something that could harm uh, your credit rating so I'd like to hear your stories if you have them please three four 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 nine nine one thousand because i think the problem with the way that the government currently runs all of this is that they allow anyone to set up a parking ticket company it's just not on the independent republic of mike graham on talk radio let's go straight now to danielle boxall from the taxpayers alliance front page of the daily mail this morning says covid chaos fear is million isolate one million people self-isolating danielle very good morning to you happy new year or good afternoon i should say (laughs) Yeah, Happy New Year, Mike. Thank you for having me on the show. Not at all. I mean, this is an extraordinary state of affairs, isn't it? Trains being cancelled, Victoria Station completely empty because there's nobody coming in on the grounds that there's not enough drivers because they're all at home self-isolating. I mean, I simply don't believe that they are all genuinely suffering from COVID. I'm sure some of them, uh, with the best will in the world, are people who have rung up their bosses and just gone, oh, I've tested positive, I'll have to stay off for a week. Yeah, well, I had a bit of trouble getting into work myself this morning because I normally go to Victoria Station. So I had to uh, take a bit of a longer journey to get into the office in Westminster today. So, yeah, there's definitely going to be a lot of people affected by these staff shortages. Yeah, but mostly the public sector are the places where all of these staff shortages are happening, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. I mean, we saw um, in the Sunday Times yesterday, they were saying that one in 10 NHS staff were off 
sick on New Year's Eve. Mm. So, and you know, the, the most absences we're seeing at the moment, uh, they're worrying about schools um, being shut down because teachers aren't coming in, uh, the NHS being under even more pressure because of staff absences. Uh, so, yeah, it's definitely the public sector, you know, bin collections, as, uh, as you mentioned earlier. Yeah. Mike. I mean, there's certain uh, places in the country where apparently the bins just haven't been even touched, I don't think, since before Christmas. So there's an awful lot. I mean, I've seen pictures, actually, of, of terrible kind of fly tipping situations where, you know, you've got in some, in some towns around the country, they've got these sort of um, what you would call, I suppose, what recycling bins, you know, in car parks and things. And it's just overflowing with rubbish. And you think, well... You can't run the country like this. You know, surely the government's going to step in and start, you know, doing something about it. Yeah, exactly. I saw myself that there was some um, a local block of flats. Their bins were absolutely overflowing. There was all the sort of wrapping paper, Christmas mm. boxes and things, all from uh, the Christmas period that are just sitting there uncollected. And it looks like an absolute dump. Yeah. I mean, you know, <laughs> we're talking about a cost of living crisis. We're talking about bins not being collected. It's all bringing back memories of the 1970s, I think. Yeah, it really is. Well, working week. But it's, you know, three days at home or two days in the office or, or no days at uh, no days in the office for some people, right. I think. Well, I'm yeah. actually old enough to remember the 70s. And I remember Leicester Square um, and the middle of Leicester Square, which is now a kind of, I suppose, a, a little garden, was just piled with, with rubbish bags. I mean, literally about, you know, sort of 50 feet high. And I mean, it was unbelievable. I think they ended up bringing the army in to empty the bins because nobody was doing any work. And we were known in those days as well as a sick man of Europe. And when you hear that the civil service are being told, don't worry, you can uh, give yourself self-certification to be off sick until January the 25th. I mean, what about the business of government here? Well, exactly. And, you know, taxpayers pay a lot of money for public services. So they do expect a certain level, a certain standard uh, of service. And they do expect, you know, certain things like bin collections, uh, GP appointments. They expect all of those things to be part of that service. And we've already given the public sector a lot of money during the course of the pandemic. So, you know, I think, you know, we've seen over almost two years of uh, restrictions and two years of this sort of sluggish behaviour with the public sector. Mm. I think people are getting a bit fed up and they're sort of tired of this excuse that, you know, oh, we can't do this because of COVID or we can't answer the phone because of COVID. Right. It's sort of getting a bit tiring now and people are sort of getting, they're sort of getting bored of this yes. excuse. Well, people are, for want of a better phrase, which I'd rather use but can't, uh, then people are just taking the mickey now, aren't they? Well, yeah, and, you know, it's not just the effect that it has on the public sector. This has a knock-on effect on the private sector as well, because if a business can't have their bins collected, right. you know, if a, a, a shop owner can't get into work because their child is, it can't go to school because the teachers aren't right. there, if, you know, people can't get GP appointments, you know, it, there's a massive knock-on effect this has on, on the wider economy. I mean, the, the driver shortage we saw mm. earlier um, last year, that was because of DVLA workers not being in the office. Right. You know, if we're going to have this sort of work from home culture or flexible working, then I think the public sector really needs to get to grips with how it's going to how it's going to do that effectively to make sure that public yeah. services aren't, aren't slipping. I mean, is it a case that the unions are still far too much in control of some public sector businesses? Well, of course, we do see that, you know, certain public sector workers, they are paid by the taxpayer to take time off to do uh, union work which is it's called um, public sector facility time right. and i think that's a shocking waste of taxpayers money in the middle of a crisis mm. that people can take time off you know to go on strike and things like that which, as we saw with the um, tube drivers right. last year that they're allowed to take time off work they're paid to take time off work 
to, to do union activities. And uh, during a, a massive public crisis like coronavirus, I don't really think that's appropriate. Well, it really isn't. And then when you also see the state of, uh, of, of play with some of these local councils, I mean, most people's council tax has gone up massively over the last two or three years. We're going to get another tax rise in April um, when the government puts on that uh, levy on national insurance, supposedly to pay for the backlog um, of NHS, um, um, you know, sort of operations, which I was told by a doctor this morning is not going to be clear for five to ten years. So you could actually walk into a GP's office today and they could say, well, we could refer you for treatment, but it might be five years before you get it. I mean, it's outrageous. Well, exactly. And, you know, the NHS was given a £5.9 billion boost in the budget. That was before the Omicron came along and we saw this new this new sort of set of delays and disruptions. So I expect the NHS is going to turn around and say, well, the, the waiting list have got even longer, so we're going to need more money to deal with it. Right. So that we can tackle this this um, staff shortages and mm. these delays. So it's sort of a, a vicious cycle, I think. They just keep asking for more money and there doesn't seem to yeah. be any, any sort of improvements in, in how things are run. I really think they need to get to grips with making sure that people are getting value for money mm. from the public sector. Well, that's it. And we clearly are not because, I mean, this is now, as I say, a much bigger problem than the actual coronavirus is itself because so many people are getting coronavirus but not going into hospital. You'd have to say, well, it doesn't look like that's going to be a really big, overwhelming situation situation for, for, the, for the hospitals, but the hospital staff are all staying home. I was told by, I think, one of your colleagues at Taxpayers Alliance that a lot of councils are now almost exclusively working from home. And so they're actually, some of them are even considering selling off some of their buildings. Now, they're not really theirs to sell, are they? Well, exactly. But I do think, you know, taxpayers will be a bit peeved if they're paying for these buildings which aren't being used. Mm. So if, if we are going to see councils working from home permanently, maybe there are efficiencies there where we could save some money, which would be great. They can reduce council tax or they can use that money to improve public services. But I don't think it's likely <laughs> that we're going to see that, unfortunately. So, um, it, yeah, I do think that this definitely needs to be a massive shift in the mindsets of uh, public sector workers at the moment. Exactly and, right. I mean, I, I don't know whether you can answer this question, but I, I, I certainly can't remember a time when council tax actually went down. I don't think it's ever done that, has it? Oh, it has been frozen, I think, for a few years um, during the early 2010s when the Cameron government first came in. Um, so I do think it went, I don't know if it went down, but I do think it was definitely frozen during the first uh, first half of uh, his, his period in office. Mm. Um, but yeah, I, I, council tax is going to go up by 3% in April. For some councils, it could even go up by 6% yeah. because of... A loophole in the uh, in the law, which means if they didn't put it up in um, April 2021, they could put it up twice right. in April 2022. Well, I can so. tell you that in about 10 years, mine's gone up about 15 percent. Well, it's actually doubled um, in the last 20 years yeah. council tax as, a, as an average. So, right. you know, over 100 council tax bandy bills are over £2,000. That's likely to go up by... Uh, a hundred more perhaps in 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 uh, 2022 so it, it's a bit of a grim picture really and people aren't seeing they aren't seeing the benefits of that council tax which is the real shame here is that they're paying a lot of money but they're not seeing anything for it and i think that's why people are really upset and in the first half of this year uh, the complaints, customer complaints, uh, were at the highest they've ever been since 2009. Mm. And most of the people that were complaining were complaining about their local uh, public sector, so the local doctor's surgeries, uh, local government, local police services. That's where we're really seeing these complaints coming in from. So yeah. 
you know, people aren't obviously very happy with the way the public sector is running at the moment. And I really think it needs to change. No. And some private sector companies, of course, as well, are ordering their people to work from home, which is entirely within their gift to do. But of course, what we're talking about is not so much the people who are being told to work from home who can, because many people can. But it turns out, I think about 75% of people can't. Certainly train drivers can't. Nurses can't. You know, teachers can't. And doctors can't. So, you know, the public sector business business of, of, of this country is is being completely and utterly holed below the waterline uh, by not allowing these people or by telling these people they can stay at home. Well, of course, and there's mo- there's lots of private companies that um, have people that can't not go into work. You know, as I mentioned, small businesses, if they, if someone's got a shop, they've got to open it. They've yeah. got to be there. They can't work from home if, if they want to because they'll be missing out on potential customs mm. and potential revenue. So, you know, I do think it's good, perhaps, that the private sector has be- become a bit more flexible. Uh, and, you know, maybe we'll see uh, an emerging market there for for types of flexible working and that might improve the economy in the long run but you know at the moment i think the knock-on effects of this sort of you know, staff shortages this pandemic that we're seeing pandemic part two uh, is definitely going to have a yeah. long-term yeah. effect on the, the the economy as a whole and the public and the private sector as well as the public sector oh, i think you're absolutely right danielle thanks very much indeed danielle boxall there from the taxpayers alliance the point is is if you're working in the civil service if you're working in local council if you're working uh, in any public sector arena it could be the nhs it could be the police you know if you're given the opportunity not to work and you are shall we say of a bit of a lazy disposition you're going to take that opportunity aren't you you're going to go okay i'll sign myself off sick until the 25th of january that's at least what a good couple of weeks off i can enjoy myself i don't have to worry about my income because that will be the same because i get sick pay because i'm in the public sector happy days absolutely brilliant well it's not absolutely brilliant and somebody needs to do something about it maybe the government could actually issue some kind of dictum and say, no, you can't sign yourself off for more than two weeks just because you fancy some time off. That's not going to happen. It's bad for the economy. It's bad for the country. And as I said earlier, it's a bit unpatriotic, actually. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. 
Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.